Mark chapter 16. I'm going to read verses 1 through 20. Mark chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? But go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him, as they mourned and wept, but when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country, and they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So then, the Lord Jesus, after He had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. This is Holy Scripture. It is for our good. Let's pray. Father, I pray that this glorious gospel message would cascade over our hearts and lives, over this region, over this world. Oh Lord Jesus, come. In Your name we pray. Amen. There's a lot of movement in this passage, and I want to walk through it by calling attention to six sequential movements, and we will all along the way and again at the end be celebrating the truth of the gospel. I call the first movement the approach, 
verses 1 through 3. Three women approach the tomb. These are the very same women identified in Mark chapter 15, and now they put into action their plan to visit the tomb where Jesus' body had been laid two days earlier. Their names are Mary Magdalene and other Mary, identified as the mother of James and Salome. These three had witnessed the crucifixion of our Lord, and two of them had witnessed His burial. Jesus was crucified, died, and was buried on a Friday, one day before the weekly seventh-day Sabbath. The Sabbath day was a day of resting from one's ordinary labors, but the Sabbath day after Jesus died was also a high feast day as the annual Passover celebration and feast of unleavened bread was in full gear. Rest and festivity were on the table. Ordinary labor and marketplace transactions were off the table. But when the Sabbath was passed, these three women bought spices so that they might go and anoint Him. Their intent was to honor their deceased and beloved Lord, treating His body with profound respect. With the sun rising in the eastern sky, they went to the tomb, and as they made their way, they anticipated a great logistical challenge. Who's going to roll away the stone? Mark 15.46 told us that a stone was rolled against the entrance of the tomb, and this very large stone was not so easily moved. It would have been easier to move the stone into place, as it were, against the tomb, but much more difficult to move it back out of place. But as they finally neared the tomb, they saw that the stone had already been rolled back. The great logistical challenge immediately comes off the list, but this rolled away stone opens the door to perplexities that far exceed their expectations. They are now just moments away from entering the tomb. And it is obvious that these women expected Jesus' body to remain in the same state as the bodies of their ancestors. Their expectation was that Jesus' body would be in the tomb so that they could, in fact, anoint Him. They had ordinary expectations, not extraordinary ones. Remember Noah? When Noah was born, his father Lamech thought that Noah was going to be the one who would, who would grant relief to humanity from the curse. Noah lived a remarkable life but after 950 years, he died, and he stayed dead. After the judgment at the Tower of Babel, God chose Abraham to be a conduit of blessing to the entire world. And Abraham received the promises and the covenant, lived a remarkable and faithful life, but after 175 years, he died, and he stayed dead. Abraham's great-grandson Joseph was a man of sterling character through remarkable circumstances sent ahead of his family to Egypt where he became the great provider and preserver of his people. What a faithful life. But after 110 years, he died and he stayed dead. Joseph's future distant cousin, one of Abraham's most famous ancestors, David, 
became king. This man, after God's own heart, won great military victories and left for us a wonderful legacy of true piety as he poured out his heart in poems and songs, which we call the Psalms. But after serving 40 years as king, David slept with his fathers. He died. And you know the pattern. He stayed dead. Noah, Abraham, Joseph, David, elite company. And to that elite company, we should add one more. John the Baptizer. John the Baptizer was great before the Lord. A no-nonsense preacher of the Word who called the nation to repentance and to, to prepare them for the coming of the Messiah. John was fearless and did not neglect to reprove Herod for his adultery. Eventually, and similar to what Pontius Pilate did to Jesus in Mark chapter 15, in Mark chapter 6, King Herod chose self-preservation over righteousness and had John beheaded. Mark 6.29 says, when his disciples heard of it, John's disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. And he stayed dead. Noah and Abraham and Joseph and David and John the Baptizer were faithful and righteous and mighty men and became so by God's grace. And yet, they were not faithful enough and righteous enough and mighty enough to reverse the power of death. Here in Mark chapter 16, these good-hearted women did not expect any different outcome than the outcome of their forebears, their clouded minds, had underestimated the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. So, we come to the second movement, which I call the Astonishment. Verses 5-8. to eight. The women are overwhelmed and afraid by what they see and hear in the tomb. Verse 5 brings us right into the tomb. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. Just a half hour ago, they had expected to see a corpse in the tomb, but now they are standing face to face with a God-appointed messenger. Matthew calls him an angel. Mark calls him a young man. I assume that he was an angel from heaven who looked like a young man. What did these women see? Not the, not the Lord's dead body laying horizontal, but a messenger sitting upright. Not the veil of death in the darkness of a tomb, but the vitality of youth and the brightness of a white robe. Unexpected. Disorienting. And they were alarmed. And then this white-robed young man opens his mouth and makes a stunning announcement. In Luke chapter 2, an angel brought the good news of great joy of our Lord's birth to the shepherds at nighttime. Now in Mark chapter 16, an angel brings the good news of great joy of our Lord's resurrection to these women in morning time. Do not be alarmed, verse 6. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen he is not here. See the place where they laid Him? But go, tell His disciples and Peter that He is going before you to Galilee. There you will see Him just as He told you. 
this mysterious young man, a messenger from heaven, gets the privilege of proclaiming the Gospel. If you had to reduce the message of the Gospel to three words, He has risen is difficult to improve upon. Unlike all the patriarchs and prophets who preceded Him, Jesus didn't stay dead. He came back to life, body and all. Acts 2.24 says, God raised Jesus up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for Him to be held by it. Jesus entered into the reality of death and from inside the belly of death, He dealt death a death blow. And then He rose from the dead as the one and only conqueror of the grave. Furthermore, the Lord Jesus had told His disciples beforehand. Mark chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And He said this plainly. And just three nights before, He had told them in Mark 14, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Thus, in Mark chapter 16, the young man says to the three women, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. How wonderful it would be to see the Lord Jesus after the confusion and sorrow of the previous two days. And everything is happening according to the Father's plan which Jesus Himself announced ahead of time just as He told you. We must appreciate the singling out of Peter for special attention. Tell His disciples and Peter. Of course, Peter was the lead apostle, but it's impossible not to remember that this same Peter had just recently fallen hard by denying that he even knew the Lord. What wonderful grace, therefore, to single out this fallen disciple and to make sure that he of all people hears the good news that Jesus will keep His promised appointment to meet Him in Galilee. Peter doesn't get, doesn't get written out of the story because of his failure, but the wonderful grace of Jesus keeps Peter very much in the story. The angel says, do not be alarmed. That is the counsel given to the alarmed women in verse 6. Isn't that beautiful counsel? Do not be alarmed, sisters and brothers. Get used to living in fellowship with one who has conquered death. But it will take time for these disoriented women to process the good and unexpected the good but unexpected news that they have heard. And for now, the thrown-for-a-loop thrown experience continues. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. It would take a little time to get their bearings. The third movement I call three appearances. Verses 9-14. to 14. The risen Jesus appears to His followers. 
Jesus actually appeared to and conversed with various individuals and groups many times during the 40 days between His resurrection and ascension. And here in Mark chapter 16, we learn about three of these appearances. These appearances are not dreams or visions, but physical, in-person appearances. First, Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene. There's so much grace here. Of all the people that the Lord might have visited first after His resurrection, it is remarkable that He chose Mary Magdalene. The two Marys and Salome had witnessed Jesus' death in chapter 15. The two Marys had witnessed His burial in chapter 15. Both Marys and Salome witnessed the empty tomb and heard the announcement from the angel. And now Mary Magdalene herself is the first human being to see the risen Lord. In giving women front row seats to the most eternally significant events in the history of the universe, and in not failing to highlight that fact in the inspired text, the Lord of glory demonstrates the high value that He places on women. Further, the Lord's appearance to Mary Magdalene is remarkable because it is manifestly evident that Mary did not earn this privilege. Apart from Jesus, Mary Magdalene was a shipwreck on a stormy sea, tossed about and tormented by seven demons. She had been set free and given a renewed mind by the power and grace of Jesus. Jesus had, had redeemed her and qualified her for participation in His spiritual family. And by God's grace, Mary had become a disciple and now a witness of the risen Lord. Having seen the Lord, she went and told the good news to the sorrowing disciples, and they did not believe her. The second appearance is recounted in verse, verse 12. Jesus appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. This must be referring to Jesus' visit with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, which is recounted at length in Luke chapter 24. The phrase, in another form, might refer to the fact that according to Luke chapter 24, these two disciples were prevented from realizing that Jesus was the one who was standing before them. They, they, they saw Him, and they conversed with Him, and yet they didn't actually know it was Him. Jesus seemed to them like someone else until their eyes were opened at the end of the meeting. But before their eyes were opened to see Him, to them it was as if He was disguised in another form. In any case, these two disciples went and told the good news to the other disciples, and they did not believe them. The pattern that unfolds in verses 9-13 to is that the disciples who had not yet seen the risen Lord did not believe the good news when it was proclaimed to them. They ought to have believed the testimony of Mary Magdalene and their two fellow disciples, but they didn't. Once more, we realize that the disciples were ordinary and flawed men, much like ourselves. 
Their unbelief sets the stage for their personal meeting with Jesus in verse 14. Afterward, He appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and He rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw Him after He had risen. Although they must have had joy at seeing their Lord, the tone of verse 14 is quite sober. The hardness of heart that they had exhibited earlier in the Gospel of Mark is still present in them. Although, if we peek ahead to the book of Acts, we understand that the grace of the risen Lord and the power of the Holy Spirit will soon transform them into faithful participants in the Lord's mission. Even so, it is another indication of grace that the risen Lord entrusts the global proclamation of the Gospel to who? I mean, He's just about to do it in verse 15. Who does He entrust this mission to? Deeply flawed individuals. The kind of individuals who are prone to hardness of heart and unbelief. All human beings are deeply flawed. And it is good for us to see right here in verses 14 and 15 that the Lord bestows His grace on undeserving sinners. And this grace doesn't leave us in our sin, but calls us out of our sin, which is why the Lord rebukes them and us. And then He redirects them into a life of mission. It's all grace. Jesus' appearance to the eleven leads immediately to the fourth movement, which I call the assignment. Verses 15-18. to The risen Lord entrusts and explains His global mission to His disciples. The primary task is given in verse 15. And He said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the Gospel to the whole creation. The primary task of Christian mission is proclamation. Proclaim the Gospel. The proper venue of Gospel proclamation is the entire world. Preach the good news everywhere to everyone. Gospel proclaiming disciples must understand what is at stake in their evangelistic work. What is at stake is nothing less than the eternal salvation or eternal condemnation of their hearers. Verse 16, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. The fundamental demand of the Gospel is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. To trust Him and bank on His promises. Genuine faith is not merely getting a right set of ideas squared away in your head. Genuine faith is so trusting Jesus that you are ready to be identified with Him and to marshal all of your energies to follow Him. The initial God-appointed way to identify with Jesus and demonstrate your faith is to submit to water baptism. uh, Here, it says believe and be baptized. In Acts chapter 2, the Apostle Peter said, repent and be baptized. Same idea. People who treat baptism like a take it or leave it add-on, haven't reckoned with the fact that Jesus commands His followers to be baptized. Do you believe that Jesus is Lord? 
Do you believe that Jesus has commanded His followers to be baptized? Have you been baptized? If not, do not delay. After giving us the primary task, the global venue, and the high stakes of Gospel proclamation, Jesus then assures His followers that He will confirm His powerful presence with His believing people through various signs. Verses 17 and 18. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In My name they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. In this context, signs are miracles that accompany those who believe and confirm the message that is to be believed. The primary and central task of Christian mission is proclaiming the Gospel. To put it in terms of music, Gospel proclamation plays first fiddle. Then, in relation to Gospel proclamation, the mighty deeds of verses 17 and 18 play second fiddle. And yet, these mighty deeds are part of the orchestral presentation of God's beauty, grace, and power to our discordant world. These mighty deeds are done in Jesus' name. And verse 20 goes on to say that these mighty deeds are actually done by Jesus. Which means that the risen Lord is doing these things through His people as they trust Him and walk in His authority. We recall that throughout the Gospel of Mark, the Lord Jesus cast out demons and healed the sick. He gave that same tasking to the disciples in Mark chapter 6, and now we are told that they will continue to do such things. The confirming signs of verses 17 and 18 may be summarized this way. Supernatural power to restore others. Casting out demons, healing the sick supernatural power to manifest God's presence and truth speaking in new tongues. And supernatural protection from harm handling serpents and drinking poison without being hurt. The book of Acts verifies what verses 17 and 18 say about casting out demons, speaking in tongues, and healing the sick. Read it. Also, Paul's strange encounter with a viper in Acts 28, echoes the promised protection from serpents. That said, we must remember that the Bible makes an important connection between demons and serpents. The idea is not that Christians will go around like zookeepers who have a keen interest in keeping and handling snakes with the added bonus that they are promised immunity from venom. That's not what's going on here. In Luke chapter 10, after re after a report that the 72 had cast out demons and that Satan's power had been broken, Jesus said to His followers, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing will harm you. Similarly, Psalm 91 says, You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent. You will trample underfoot. So here 
is the encouragement as you participate in the gospel mission to rescue people from the domain of darkness, you can have confidence that the Lord will protect you from demonic attack and at the same time, the Lord will work through you to deliver others from Satan's grip. Further, you can have confidence that the Lord will preserve your life from the venom and poison that the enemy throws at you until you have completed the work that the Lord has given you. And at the same time, the Lord will work through you to bring life and health to others, which includes ultimately the gift of eternal salvation, but also, at least on some occasions, physical healing. As we go forth to proclaim the Gospel, and as a community is formed around that Gospel, expect the Lord Jesus to be powerfully present with us. He will protect us and sustain us so that we can accomplish His work, and He will make us a tangible blessing to others. This will happen not on some prosperous path of plenty and ease, but on the path of self-denial. Cross-bearing. Suffering, facing persecution and imprisonment, and eventually dying, with some believers dying as martyrs. As we embody and carry the Lord's gracious presence, now we are like little signposts that anticipate the great glory that will be revealed when Jesus comes back. As we sing, no more. Let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make His blessings flow, far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, far as, far as the curse is found. Earlier, I said that there's a lot of movement in Mark chapter 16, and nowhere is that more evident than in the final two verses. The fifth movement is the ascension, verse 19. The risen Lord ascends into heaven and sits down at God's right hand. The Gospel of Mark has prepared us for this moment. Jesus is Messiah and Lord. And in Mark chapter 12, Jesus taught us that the Lord Messiah will sit at God's right hand until all His enemies are placed under His feet. And then in Mark chapter 14, when Jesus stood trial before the Jewish high council, Jesus affirmed that he is the high priest. That, I'm sorry. He, he affirmed that he is the Messiah. And then he told the high priest, You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. Now, Mark 16 19 brings the Lord's promise to the moment of fulfillment. The risen Lord is taken up into heaven and sits at the Father's right hand. Jesus was not the first man to be taken straight away to heaven. The prophet Elijah and righteous Enoch were also afforded that privilege. But Jesus is the first man who died and rose again to be taken up into heaven. And unlike Elijah and Enoch, Jesus wasn't just welcomed into the general company of heaven, but He was seated in the position of highest honor. He sat down at the right hand of God. The right hand signifies the place of highest honor and blessing and power. And that place belongs to the true King. The beloved Son. The crucified One who shed His blood in order to redeem His people. 
the Father has entrusted universal lordship and kingly authority to Jesus, the King who died for others. And the lordship of Jesus Christ is the truth with which every man, every woman, every child must come to terms. It is His Lordship that is proclaimed and all are called to believe upon His name or perish. As we come to verse 20, notice the progression. The upward movement of Jesus into heaven where He is enthroned as King of kings and Lord of lords is immediately followed by the outward movement of Jesus' followers into all the earth. I call this sixth and final movement the advance. Jesus' disciples go and proclaim the Gospel everywhere. Notice how verses 15-20 to fit together. Gospel proclamation happens and the confirming signs happen as a result of Jesus' exaltation to the Father's right hand under the sovereign authority of Jesus and at His direction and with His powerfully present help, the disciples go forth and do the work assigned them. Verse 20, And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. The work of global evangelization is not yet complete. And the full number of God's elect have not yet been brought into fellowship with the Lord. Therefore, we also go forth under His authority, at His command, with His help, and in this manner we proclaim the Gospel everywhere. Brothers and sisters, we must proclaim the Gospel. Mark 16 proclaims the Gospel. The crucified One is risen and is now seated at God's right hand. And Mark chapter 16 tells us to proclaim the Gospel and reports that the first disciples actually did so. They went out and preached everywhere. In fact, the entire Gospel of Mark has been proclaiming the Gospel. The very first verse says, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's, let's recall and cherish this Gospel that Mark has preached to us. This Gospel is the Gospel of the risen Lord seated at the right hand of God. It is profoundly right in our Christmas hymns to sing glory to the newborn King and to declare Jesus Lord at Thy birth. Yes and amen. And yet, in an even richer way, we must sing glory to the risen King and declare Jesus Lord at Thy ascension. The ascension bids us to look up. So look up. Look up to the highest echelon of power over the entire cosmos. And there you will see one who entered our world. One who endured temptation and sacrificed comfort and extended grace. Where did He extend grace? Here! In this sin-sick, broken world of ours. Oh, little town of Bethlehem. In thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. The Lord comes. The light 
shines. Gospel means good news. And the good news is that someone has entered our broken world and did something to fix it. We look around with 21st century eyes and see the signs of brokenness all around us. Fears and false hopes, mental illness and drug addiction, broken families and corrupting entertainments, political expediency and empty religiosity, parents burdened for their children. Spiritual leaders today are often as out of touch as were the chief priests, elders, and scribes who opposed our Lord. And political leaders continue to fit the mold of Pontius Pilate and King Herod. Human beings like to throw glorified band-aids, lofty social programs, and boatloads of tax money at these problems of ours, which fools a lot of people into thinking that we are addressing our problems, which we are not. But the root problem remains the same. Bondage to sin, alienation from God, and the judgment to come. Whether the 21st century world or the 1st century world into which Jesus came, there is nothing new under the sun. The first part of the Gospel is the simple grace that He came. He came not with a toolkit of band-aids, programs, and money, but with the power and grace of His own life and the inexhaustible bounty of His Father's resources. He encounters a leper, a demoniac, a hemorrhaging woman. And He brings grace to heal and restore. The grace of Jesus means that the unclean can be cleansed and so live in fellowship with God and His people. He encounters a paralyzed man whose paralysis went all the way down into his heart and he said, Son, your sins are forgiven. He encounters religious nobodies like tax collectors and other publicly recognized sinners. And He eats with them, assuring us all that He did not come to congratulate the self-righteous on their outward show, but that He came for real physicians, I'm sorry, that He came for real sinners who need a great physician who can cut deep and heal the heart. He encounters parents who are burdened for their children. One daughter and one son who had been taken captive by the powers of darkness and another daughter who had succumbed to death. The Lord speaks. And in speaking, He sets the prisoner free and raises the dead girl to life. These gracious gifts are free to the sinner. But they cost Him everything. The Old Testament teaches us very clearly that death is the consequence of sin. So if anyone is going to reverse the power of death, the debt of sin must be paid in full. Setting slaves free from the law of sin and death can only be done at a steep price. Is anyone willing to pay that price? Is anyone able to spread a table of grace in this barren wilderness world of ours? Is there an answer for the desolation of sin and death? In Mark chapter 6, in a desolate place with only five loaves and two fish, Jesus fed 5,000 men. He said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people the Lord's grace in a desolate place. In Mark chapter 8, in another desolate place with only seven loaves and a few small fish, He fed 4,000. He took the seven loaves and having given thanks, He broke them and gave them to His disciples to set before the people the Lord's grace in a desolate place. In Mark chapter 14, 
in a large upper room surrounded by soon-to-be-scattered sheep and with a far greater desolation on his mind, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it and he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many and 12 hours later, he was nailed to the tree and entered the place of ultimate desolation, which is being forsaken by the Father. This is desolation when and where God pours out the cup of His judgment and withdraws the light of His favor. It could be no other way. This is why He came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. The beloved Son became the sin-bearer who bore our punishment in our place. He is the bread of life. His body is broken apart in order to give us life. He is the Redeemer who purchases the blessings of the new covenant with His very own blood. The blessings of the new covenant include the gift of knowing God and having fellowship with God and having your sins forgiven and having your heart wonderfully remade according to God's own gracious character. These blessings were secured by the King who loved us and gave Himself for us. The Lord's grace in a desolate place. He entered into the desolation on our behalf so that all who trust Him can enter into His bountiful kingdom. Friends, look up to the highest echelon of power and there you will see a man. The man Christ Jesus who gave His life as a ransom for many and who is now seated on His heavenly throne. Look up to the highest echelon of power and there you will see a man who is not only truly human but also truly divine and equal with the Father in blessing and honor and glory. Jesus, the God-man bears our sins, our accursedness, our judgment, and enters into the grip of death itself. But when the Holy One shed His own blood in order to satisfy the sentence of death, the death imposed upon guilty sinners, He perfectly satisfied the demand of God's justice. And when the sin of death is paid in full, the power of death is vanquished. Thus, Jesus 2 Timothy 1.10 abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel. For His incomparable holiness and sacrifice and love, He alone is worthy. He alone is worthy to sit on the throne, save His people, and judge the world. This worthy King gives the cup of eternal salvation to everyone who believes in Him. And every thirsty soul who has discovered that Jesus is the fountain of living water will never be put to shame. Friend, leave your heart-sick, sin-dominated, satanically harassed, and death-bound existence. And trust in the crucified One who is risen and is now enthroned in heaven and follow Him on the path of discipleship. Lose everything for the surpassing joy of knowing Him. Church, although we are weak and frail, let us look up one more time and remember the good news of the King who sits at God's right hand and has indeed made perfect satisfaction for our sins. He loves us still. He still commissions us to go. 
and He still works with us and through us as we proclaim His Gospel. Therefore, let's sing of the worth of our King. And let's go forth with His message on our lips so that more and more people will have their eyes opened to the splendor and grace of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray that You would lift high the name of Jesus in this sanctuary, in this people, in this church family. And then, Father, I pray that through us You would display the worth and the power and the grace of Christ to all of western Maine. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.